Beloved, what is the alternative to grace alone? What's the alternative? What other way would you rather live? Right? There isn't another way to live. Right? And, and you, you can try to get spiritual. Well, I want to obey everything. Hey, good luck. Knock yourself out. Right? Say that Paul's wrong. That's where I want to be standing on Judgment Day. God is not reckless and irresponsible. Beloved, God is not reckless and irresponsible. He knows how to make His children righteous. Grace is not a threat to God's plan for us. The law is. We must see this. Don't fall for that. We need balance. Nonsense. We are His children. We need freedom. And it will not separate us from Christ. Freedom will not lead to separation from Christ. So when someone stops believing the gospel, it's not because they were just too free. No, it, it, it is not because of grace when people leave the gospel. It's when we stop believing that grace alone saves us that we fall away, according to the Bible. It's when we try to gain our righteousness or our standing by some other means than Christ, like our obedience, that we fall away according to God's Word. The sacrifices of the old covenant system, the old covenant law, are no longer effective. They're no longer effective. So if we put ourselves back under the law, which is a system, by believing that we need to follow even one part of it, it inevitably results in condemnation because there's no provision in it unless you're perfect. Look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That's how you fall away from grace. Right? Because you didn't believe the gospel. That's how people fall away. Right? They never believe the gospel. When you look at verse 4, how and why has the church not been told, any church, apparently, how, how serious of an issue this really is? When you look at verse 4. How did it become so normal for us to believe that we are still bound to keep at least some parts of the law? How did that become normal? How did that become acceptable? Right? I mean, it, it's we don't even question that. It's shocking to hear the opposite, in fact. How? People are severed from Christ because of that. They fall away from grace because of that. And it's not because, the reason we believe you have to keep at least some of the laws, not because preachers actually go around saying, you know, you actually have to be justified by the law. You'd be able to recognize that right away as heresy. So we don't say it that way. It's said in other ways. That's why it's so hard for us to recognize. So we cover it up in pious language, like, like this. You know, if, if you're, if you're really a Christian, ah, you see, identity, right? If you're really a Christian, if you're really a son of God, then you'll still keep at least the moral law, the Ten Commandments, right? Because if you don't have those, how do you know that murder's wrong? The Holy Spirit's apparently just a, a, a dud, right? If, if I don't have the sentence telling me murder is wrong, how am I ever gonna know murder is wrong? Right? Well, that makes sense. That's plausible. So we just buy it. They're our guide, right? They, they, they keep us on the straight and narrow. The law does. And since 
we are not able to reform and are not called to balancing grace and law in our lives, according to verses 2 and 3, our hearts get mixed up. We can't handle it. Am I saved by grace? Or am I actually ultimately saved by works? I, I know that I have to be saved by grace apart from works, but I still have to do these things in order to go to heaven. Like I, and so we just go in and out of doubt and confusion and all questioning, our, am I really a Christian? Am I, am I really going to heaven? That, read 5.1. Like th- those two things don't equal out. Listen to Jesus say, we come back to this again and again, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does your Christianity feel like that? You feel like you have this giant chain around your neck and you're never measuring up. And if the preacher isn't going to lay the guilt on you, Facebook will do it for you. Believers will put on uh, real Christians do this. And real Christians, there's a billboard I see around, real Christians love their neighbor. Well, then there aren't any real Christians. Very few people actually love their neighbor to the extent the law requires. Please. That's, that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? I, I, you want to love your neighbor as yourself as the law intends? Nobody's doing that. Come on. Right? So it's, it's just, it's this. And eventually, when we move away from grace alone, when we let that, right, we let that get inside and start to mess with us and make us doubt what Christ has done and doubt our ability, we inevitably and unavoidably to fix it go more towards the law. You know, I, I, I need, I need to buckle down and get serious and rededicate my, all these terms we use that aren't here, right? And we end up either self-righteous or feeling so condemned we leave Christianity altogether. And I, I just, I'm not saying this to be mean. I, I, I wonder, in light of the text, how many people sitting in this room right now or churches around the country honestly believe, honestly believe that they're actually right with God because they're a good person who does their best to please Him every day. And Jesus' job was to just give them a nice push in the right direction, to help out. If that's where you are, you've fallen away from grace. Not because you can get salvation and lose it, but because you don't believe it. You don't believe the gospel. There's no other way to be saved but to believe the gospel. That's not how we're justified. We're not justified by a mix of grace and law. It's not a mix between grace and our performance. And if that's where you are, you must repent. You must come back to the gospel, to Christ alone. God will not allow the two systems, grace and law, to be mixed. Law is over as a system of righteousness. There's no provision for sin under it. The sacrifices are over. So if you put yourself back under any of it, Again, you have to be perfect in order to become righteous. This is what Jesus is saying at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, you see, all along you thought, for example, Jesus talking to them, you thought that don't murder. Well, I haven't killed anybody, so I've kept the law. Jesus says, no, no, no. What what it actually means is, if you hate somebody, you've murdered them. So he gets through all of that. Remember, if you, if you, I've never committed adultery. If you looked on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. That's, that's what he's doing there. And then he gets to the end and he says, Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
That's what it is to live under the law. That's what they didn't realize. And Jesus came to say it. Like, you, you want to be righteous before God by obeying the law? Well, then you have to be perfect. Because that's the terms of that covenant. That was not an invitation to try. It was a statement meant to wake them up. You can't be perfect. So what are you going to do? You need me. That was Jesus on the earth. They murdered him. They murdered him for saying that. No mixing, beloved. No balance. Believe the gospel. Stand under the waterfall of grace. It's God's means of righteousness. And God accepts his son on our behalf. No whispers of mixing. None. None. Every time we fight to get people to keep even one commandment, we're actually fighting against God's grace. Do we realize that? And listen, when when we ask, but Tony, how will people know the right thing to do if they don't have the law to guide them? What does that assume, first of all, that if they do have it, they will obey it? You ever seen a sign that says no graffiti with graffiti written on it? That's what the law does. That's what the law does. It exposes the fact that we are scoundrels, crooked deep down all the way. So the first thing we're at, when we say, how will people know the right thing to do if they don't have the law to guide them? I understand that's that's a, a logical question, but it's assuming, first of all, that if people have it, they can keep it which we should know just by Galatians is nonsense. But also, beloved, do you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because that's where Paul's going to go. The power of the Holy Spirit now to keep God's children and enable them to glorify God. The Spirit is going to do what the law cannot do. The law has not been laid down for the righteous in 1 Timothy 1.9. It's not for the righteous. Its power and purpose now, then, is not to keep the Christian on the straight and narrow, but to crush those who think they don't need Jesus by showing them they can't possibly do what God requires. There's no dividing up the law to to require circumcision, to require obedience to any one part of the law is to put oneself back under the whole law as a system. And that only condemns. It was the same issue in Acts 15. It is always the issue. Right? It's always the issue. If we're, we're looking at the Bible, what's the running theme? It, it's that, that they don't believe the gospel. Listen to Martin Luther here. I, I, I love this. Some people today, this is in the 16th century, Some people today would bind us to certain of Moses' laws that they like best. Right, the ones you might be able to keep. As the false apostles wanted to do at that time. He's talking about Galatians 5. But this is not to be allowed at all. If we give Moses leave to rule over us in anything, we are bound to obey him in everything. That's what Paul just said. Therefore, we must not be burdened with any law of Moses. 
We grant that he is to be read by us and to be listened to as a prophet and a witness of Christ. And moreover, that out of him we may take examples of good laws and holy life, but we will not let him have dominion over our conscience in any way. In this respect, let him be dead and buried and let no one know where his grave is. Amen. To go back under the law is to be left on your own for righteousness. Right? It, it's, you, you, it's not just a system of rules. It's a means by which a certain people in time had to make themselves right before God. That's what it is. It's not a tree with rules hanging on it. Right? It's a system. And it's over as a system. To go back under the law is to be left on your own for righteousness. It's to fall away from the only thing that can save us. Grace. Listen to Paul in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In other words, perfection will be granted to us. We will not attain it or perform well enough to eventually be declared righteous. We won't work our way or mature our way into it. It is only by the Spirit that we have faith at all, since faith is also the gift of God. So it's only by that same Spirit that we look away from ourselves to trust in another. If we are left to ourselves, we will never stop looking at ourselves. Look back at verse 1. We weren't ever meant to live that way. We weren't ever meant to live that way. Under that burden and fear and oppression and doubt, it belittles Jesus and what He's done for us, who He is for us. We're free now. And we wait for the hope of righteousness. We trust God to do it. And what the gospel reveals is that He will do it. But the law won't do it for us. The Spirit will do it for us. Verse 6, 4. Right? Look down at verse 6, 4. So we wait because in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Anything. So it doesn't count for neither ethnicity or obedience make a person righteous but only faith working through love which is what he'll address in the next section regarding the fruit of the spirit that's the context of that well known text the spirit will do his work and produce his fruit in us it will happen the faith God has given to us to believe in his son will produce love in us nothing else can do that Nothing else counts for anything anymore. It's not that there's inherent virtue then in not being circumcised. It's that whether or not we're circumcised makes no saving difference whatsoever. What counts is that is what the Spirit now produces in us. That's what counts because it comes by faith. Faith is counted to us as righteousness. Not works, right? That thought brings Paul back to his burden for them. Remember, we saw there in the middle of, of chapter 4, he fears he's wasted his time with them because they want to go back to the law. Look at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? In other words, you were fine. You were fine. What changed your mind about the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel? That's what it means now to obey the truth. It means to believe in Jesus who is the truth. This is the work of God, to believe the one whom He has sent. What has hindered you from believing the gospel? Verse 8. 
This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. Beloved, did you hear that? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. Right. It's not God that by His Spirit is persuading you and troubling you that you need to obey the law or be circumcised in order to be righteous. That's not coming from God. It's an amazing text. So where is that confusion and troubling coming from? Why is it so pervasive? Why is it so normal? Why is that idea, you, you really need to have balance and, 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 and still keep? And st- where is that coming from? Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So we don't usually need to fear or be on the lookout for some large group that all have t-shirts that say, we believe you have to obey the law in order to be accepted by God in order to be blown over by that teaching. You just need a voice or two. Just a little bit. A little bit. Leavens the whole lump. Doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. Paul speaks of the influence of the false teachers that are troubling these people and making them doubt the gospel as leaven. It's an agent of evil all throughout Scripture within the church that is spreading like wildfire. That's how precarious our hearts are. It just takes a little bit of doubt and questioning. Just that that voice that won't go away with rules. Yeah, but you have just dropped in here and there. It was killing Galatia. And they had Paul to guide them. Well, I'm no Paul, Moundsville. This leaven will kill us if we let it spread. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, our Lord told us. Beloved, the the vigilance the church is called to mainly is to keep out the voices of balance, of law. We wouldn't say that's where the fight is. We're afraid of the culture. That's where we think the fight is. All those sinners out there, they're, they're, they're after us. Yeah. We are not above our master. That's a no-brainer. That's not where the fight is. The fight's right here. Beloved, you, you only get in by believing. That's where the fight is. But Paul still hopes for them. right? He still hopes for them. Look at verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Was it really just one person, one voice in Galatia? I, I, think, I think it's more likely that Paul is speaking of the, the spokesman or the ringleader of the Judaizers in Galatia, but Paul's hope is that the truth will convince them once more as it had before. And his hope, his belief, is that the one who is making them doubt it will pay for that. That's godly. That's righteous to feel that way. No human has the right to trouble the sheep into thinking their shepherd is insufficient to save them. None. And make no mistake, that's precisely what fiddling with the law in the church is doing according to God's word. Troubling his people. Paul's opponents are ruthless. They're dishonest. Apparently, as we're about to see, they've been accusing Paul of hypocrisy along with everything else, saying something like, apparently, well, he preaches circumcision elsewhere. Because look at verse 11. 
But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul says, if I preach circumcision everywhere else, why am I spending every moment of my life everywhere else under persecution and the threat of violence and death? That's, that's what he's saying. But do we also see what's being very heavily stated or implied here? Read, look at the verse again. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the preaching of circumcision for righteousness, the offense of the cross has been removed. Humans do not find the preaching of the law for justification, for being made right with God, as offensive. You see what he's saying? If I was preaching that, I wouldn't be persecuted. Humans love that. It's preaching the law for righteousness that will flood the altars, beloved. We love to hear that we have even some skin in the game. That, that, that's what we want, that we're responsible for something, that we can earn it, that we can get paid for it. So to hell with the preaching of the law for justification. Let it be condemned and damned. Now is that too harsh to say? Verse 12. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Every word authoritative and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. Every word of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Even Galatians 5, 12. It's not just Paul's wish then, but the wish of the Holy Spirit for the false teachers in Galatia. I hope everybody knows what he means here so that I don't have to go into a lot of detail. Basically, he's saying, don't stop at circumcision. That's what he's saying. Right? Are we... Can we move on? Like, am I making too much of a big... That, that's what he's saying. And the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is, it's, it's not just shocking, it's ironic. For to be missing that, you with me, in Deuteronomy 23.1, excludes a person from the assembly of the Lord. Now go back up to chapter 4, verse 30. What is Paul saying? Get them out of here. You're not welcome here. Get out. If you're going to mix law and grace for justification, get out. That's Christ-like. Verse 12 is Christ-like. Who did Jesus call a brood of vipers? Did He call the tax collectors that? Did He call the prostitutes that? No. He called the Pharisees that. Sheep don't lie down with snakes. We, we, we have to understand what it really means to be like Jesus. Not that you go around quoting 512 to everybody you don't like. Don't, don't do that. That's, that's, don't do that. That's bad. But the essence of it is, is, if you're gonna muddy the water on how a person's made right with God, you get out of here. Right? Go all the way. Don't stop at one. Just go all the way and get out. Right? That's heavy. I wish those... If, in other words, the mixing of grace and law, there's hatred for it. In the midst of the compassion and grace and mercy and love of Jesus, there's hatred for what kills the objects of those things. 
can't be tolerated in the church of Jesus Christ. The shepherd hates what unsettles the hearts of his sheep. The shepherd hates it. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Why? Look at verse 13. For, here's why, you were called to freedom, brothers. You see that dichotomy? That which is unsettling, like teaching that there are parts of the law that Christians still have to obey in order to be righteous, keeps the sheep from the freedom Jesus died for them to have. And Paul would rather see the opponents of the gospel emasculate themselves than see the freedom of the Galatian believers threatened. That's how big of a deal it is. Right, verse, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Aha! Told you, Tony. There it is. Right? That's, that's when, that's, when, when you don't like 5-1, you skip right down to 13 and go, See? Because we're just so anxious to be justified by the law. Yeah, put me back under rules, chief. I, I don't... Enough of the grace and the freedom. Get me back on 13. Yes, there are rules, right? See, Tony, you're not free, free. Why would Paul say that? Listen, listen, listen to it again. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Because you could. You could. Beloved, what else could it mean? If you're really free. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Should we use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? Absolutely not. But we could. That's the whole point. That's what it means to be free. The point here is that freedom was not given to indulge the flesh... It was given to glorify God. But that doesn't make our freedom something less than actual freedom. It's reinforcing by way of effect, this is how free you really are. Jesus really has done it all. And listen, knowing that, hearing that, does not lead to people using their freedom to indulge their flesh. What Think, think about what we've gone through so far in Galatians. What would guarantee that people would use their freedom to indulge their flesh. If, if you heard that, which would be a law, what would it do? It would cause you to indulge your flesh. Have we listened to the book of Galatians? What happens when a law hits the human heart? Do this or else. You don't do it. So he's, he's not going back on everything he's been saying for five chapters. Right? This is not about, oh, it's cool, so I can get away with... No, no, no. This is about how good Jesus Christ is. This is about how great Jesus Christ is. What we should do with our freedom is through love, serve one another. We are now free to love freely rather than to love out of obligation. To love freely without our love being our attempt to become righteous. If you think about it, nobody would have actually been loved under that anyway. Because that's not what love is. Why do you love me? I have to or I'm going to go to hell. Oh, great. Thank you. Let's, let's go to dinner. That's, that's wonderful. <laughs> it just <laughs> Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That, that's amazing. So 
Think, think about this. Just by breaking one law, you're guilty of breaking all of them. Just as by putting yourself under one commandment, you're now obligated to be under all of them. Just by loving your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill the whole law. Now, why does Paul say this after speaking seemingly so negatively of the law throughout the book? To prove the power and sufficiency of what Christ has done. The essence of the law doesn't go out into the void and get dropped now that Christ has come. It gets fulfilled by Christ. This law has been fulfilled somewhere in the person of Christ, the promised seed of Abraham, to such an extent that it now also gets completely fulfilled then every single time a believer loves his neighbor as himself. Beloved, notice the language here because it's very important. We are not, now after all of this, being put back under a yoke of bondage here. Don't miss this. Because you can read it and say, oh, now I, I still am responsible to fulfill the whole law. It's not a command. Look at that. I thought you said, no, beloved, listen, nowhere does Paul say Christians are to do the law. Nowhere. But instead, says that when we love our neighbor selflessly, selflessly as Christ did, we are actually fulfilling the law. And fulfillment describes what the Christian does with the law. It does not describe how Christians are to do the law. The, the wording is very important. But in verse 15, so here's the antithesis of loving your neighbor as yourself. And if we look, it has to do mainly with our words. But, verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is all very specific instruction relative to the issues in Galatia. Okay, What it looks like is that the false teachers, apparently, their influence in Galatia has caused the believers to start attacking one another and tearing each other down and gossiping about one another to the extent that now they're biting and devouring one another. So real quick, just so we're clear, how has focusing more on the law made them more righteous and loving? Has it brought about more love? Has it brought about more unity? Has it brought about more disciplined hearts when it comes to obeying God? No, it's divided and it's killing the body. It does not lead to righteousness. It leads to all-out war and cannibalism. Like it's, beloved, it's right in front of us. You want to kill a church? Push the law for righteousness. Legalism causes Christians to eat each other alive. Because when our focus is not on the sufficiency of Christ for us, it falls inevitably on ourselves and each other. And nothing splits or damages a church more than legalism. Right? It's, it just, you, you pick your teams. And it's just, it's just war. Legalism seeks victory or influence through divide and conquer, right? Encouraging believers to doubt or question themselves and each other, to self-righteously judge and criticize one another. Tradition does the same thing because it's all man-made preference, which is all legalism is. What is stirring this up? Or more specifically, why does legalism stir up division? Why? I think this is, this is the heart of the text here, this section. Why does legalism stir up division? Because legalism is at its core an extension of the fact that we naturally find the cross of Jesus Christ offensive. 
That's why there's conflict. And has been since Cain and Abel. Right? We do not like to see someone else enjoying something they got for free. We don't like it. How dare someone act like God has accepted them without requiring any sweat from their brow. If they were a decent person, they would at least try to pay it back and act like they were thankful and grateful for it. Right? See what that does? Do you you see the judgment you're putting on somebody when you do that? I believe you're not doing enough to prove that you take God seriously. Yeah, that, that, you multiply that, we're gonna eat each other alive. Right? Right. People need to be put under rules then. We gotta get a handle on this so that they take God as seriously as I do. I'm tired, I'm worn out. What about them? I'm working hard, why aren't they? It's the root of all conflict. The cross is offensive because it lets everyone off the hook for having to work to earn their salvation. Right? That's offensive. You know how you feel. How I feel. When somebody gets something they didn't earn and then has the audacity to enjoy it. Right? If, if you, it's weird. If you, I assume when you say to me, if you're going to buy me dinner, get anything you want, I assume you don't mean the lobster. Right? What if, what if you ordered, you know what, I'm going to have the lobster, and I'll tell you what, champ, throw a steak in there. The missus and I will have a ravioli, we'll have a cheesecake. I mean, you, could you imagine? Oh, he, okay, I didn't mean that. God means that. God means that. Or what? Like, who's getting in? If he, come on. Just, just, I'm gonna say something crazy. Okay? Forget the text for a minute. Okay? Who's getting in if you have to behave your way in? Does anybody honestly think, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm good. But we're teetering on the brink there of falling away from grace. It's terrifying. Like, like this is the thing. The cross will not allow works to be the basis of anyone's salvation. There's no wall with accomplishments that, that other people are being measured against. Everyone's being measured against Christ and everybody's failing miserably. So Christ is saving totally. That's what makes us who we are. That's what makes us a church. That's the message we have for our community. Not that if they try really hard, they can get better. That if they never do, Christ will accept them anyway. It's a different message altogether. And don't say, well, yeah, but they got to... Let the Holy Spirit worry about that. Let the Holy Spirit do it. He'll do it. We aren't... You don't You don't measure other people's fruit level. We don't do that. Like, I, I think you, your fruit should look like this by now, and it should be this much. No, like that... Again, what does that lead to? cannibalism we bite and devour one another to the extent that we're consumed by one another it's just it's 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 a tragedy this cross strips us of every ounce of credit for our salvation that we could possibly take while simultaneously calling us wretches that's what i am it, it lets us know that even our best it, it's not 
good enough. It won't scratch the surface of the blinding holiness of God that we can't even look at if we wanted to. It just, it won't scratch the surface. It's not good enough. We're not good enough. Only Christ. He is good enough. Hop on His back. He'll get you home. So to the degree we're convinced that we have to contribute something, we, we just, according to the text, we won't be able to handle it when other people have the audacity to think they don't have to contribute anything. We, we, thus comes the war. What James calls the murder of one another in James 4, where the gospel is preached in its fullness. And I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm doing that. I don't know if I'm doing that. I hope I'm doing that. I'm saying as a point of fact... When the gospel is preached in its fullness, we must be aware of our tendency to corrupt it with our own desires to be made righteous before God by our works. I, I know we all, we all struggle to embrace what Paul is saying. I don't mean that that's a sin. I mean, beware of the tendency that we're all going to have to go back to works, to the law. That's there. It's in there. It's part of our DNA. We got it from Adam. So it's It's there. Because that affects everybody. It doesn't just affect us, it affects everybody. The message of the cross is offensive to the human heart. I mean, why did the Galatian believers fall so quickly? Because that's what's at issue here. Remember, why were they so easily bewitched? Because all the false teachers had to do was capitalize on their lingering doubt about whether or not grace is as good as it sounds. And then all hell broke loose in Galatia. How in the world is grace not more appealing? Have we ever thought about that? Like, why is this hated? That doesn't make any sense. I could understand if the other way was hated. But grace? Why not make the obvious choice here and choose the way of Christ who saves us by grace through faith alone apart from any works whatsoever? Why? Come on. Why would you not want that? I mean, imagine... I have the ability and I say to you, okay, I can just give you a billion dollars for free. You don't have to pay it back and I'll never hold it over your head. In fact, I hope you spend every penny and come back for more. Or um, you can try to earn it on your own, but you'll never be able to. Now, which one would you take? Here's the crazy thing. I wonder how many of us would actually take the money. For one, th- I just thought of that. I think we'd probably be like, I don't want that hanging over my head. But it's not. Right? It's not. God's not hanging your free salvation over your head this morning. He never has. You and I might do that. Well-meaning Christian brothers and sisters might do that. The king of the earth has never done it. Why do we feel so oppressed? And not free. Which, but again, to the which which one are you? Uh, I'm I'm, I'm going to take that money. <laughs> I'm gonna, you know what I could do with a billion dollars? I mean, I have it spent by seven thirty, eight o'clock. But I mean, I could, I could figure it out. How do people not come in droves when the message is grace? Have you ever thought about that? Now, I, I think there's a deeper reason. I think Paul hits on it elsewhere about our inability to believe. That's in the Bible. But, but at another level, 
Why don't people come in droves when it's free? They come for everything else that's free in droves. Why not come for this when it's free? Because grace is more offensive and strange to the human heart than anything else in the universe. It just doesn't compute. Law can bring people to the altar. It won't keep them in Christ. The law doesn't love you. The law didn't die for you. The law does nothing to provide for you to help you keep it once you're under it. Its function is to drive us to Christ, not to become the means by which we gain His favor. But what do we want? Apparently we want it to be the law. Because when you preach grace, somebody's going to say, Stop! You're going to say too much. You're going to go too far. Where? Have you ever thought, where is that coming from? Why would you want it to be mixed? How able do you think you are? We want the law because our flesh turns it into something that puts the ball in our court to gain God's favor. And the only way I can be sure of it and secure it is if I'm in control of it. Do you, you, you see? That's what. That's why faith is so hard. Because faith is, is turning away from all of that and saying, all right, all right, I'll, I'll, you, I believe it. You take it. You do it. That, that's, that's what it is. It's, just, it's saying, you're right, I can't do anything. What does it take to get a human being to believe they're totally incapable of doing something? Right? I mean, it's just, our whole society is based on our ability to do whatever we dream. Jump out of a plane from 5,000 feet and fly then. If you can do whatever you dream to do. I dreamed to fly all during my childhood. I wore a cape and green rain boots and an Incredible Hawk t-shirt and a red cape my whole young life. I literally thought one day... I'm going to turn this franchise around. I'm going to learn how to fly as a human being. Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't do that. There are some things we can't do. The cross is offensive because the cross says, keep it. I want nothing you have. In fact, if you don't lay it all down, if you try to bring any of it with you, I won't accept you. Beloved, if we believe there's anything necessary for salvation in addition to Christ, we should invent another religion and stop sabotaging Christianity. Because Christ is worthless to that thinking. There's nothing under the sun more harmful to the church of Jesus Christ than the doctrines and traditions of people who just can't rest under grace because they'll refuse to let you rest under it either. I know the cross is offensive. I, I know it's not pleasant to hear that we're so fallen and corrupted and dead in our sins and slaves that we can do nothing for God and have nothing God will accept. I know it's hard to rest in Christ when we read these commands. I, like, I, I understand. I know it's hard to believe that we're actually free. But it's true. All of it. It's true. When I, when I hear, when I read that Christ has freed me, I don't want to go sin. I want to be with Him. Right? Like, God knows what He's doing. It's not like, oh, don't say it like that. People actually, yeah, they might. I can handle it. Such is the quality of our Savior. There's no earth-shattering revelation here. Just, it's, it's, it is what it is. Jesus Christ welcomes wretches and sinners and no one else. So if that's what you are, if you're like me, if that's what you are, 
and you come to Jesus, He will fully accept you. And He will make you right with God forever. That's just the way it is. And give you a seat of honor at His table on top of all that. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the offense of the cross. Either let Jesus do all for you, forgive you of all your sin, give you all His righteousness, or He will do nothing for you. There is no salvation apart from Him. Just believe it. Just embrace it. It's for all who come to Him. Let me pray before this thing gets any longer. All right? Let me pray. Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You for the truth and perfection of Your Word. And Father, I pray now that as we sing, You would bring Your truth to our minds and cause Your Spirit um, to enable us to believe these things. Lord, take us into Your Word. Draw us nearer to You. Father, we want to glorify You. We want to rest in You. So Father, teach us what that means because we have our own ideas of what that means. But will You please teach us what that means? Open blind eyes this morning, raise the dead, and comfort the troubled sheep, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Wonderful announcements. Uh, this is Emma Crow. This is Ellie. Ellie Crow. And this is Kaylee McIlvain. Uh, both of them have been saved. Both of them desire to follow the Lord in baptism. So this week, we'll, we'll uh, hopefully this week, we'll be able to meet and set up a time and we'll get that done. And I believe we have one other baptism as well. So we'll have a very happy Sunday here very soon. But uh, as, as we go here in just a minute, please come by, shake their hand. Um, Say hello to them. Just this, this is wonderful. This is, it's exciting to me if, if, if children get it. It's exciting to me. That's who should get it.
So let, let's pray and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Thank you for being so patient, everybody. Thank you. Father, we thank you so much for the time that you've given to us. I thank you so much for the work that you have done in the lives of these two young ladies. Father, how we pray for them. We're thankful for them, for their families. And so, Lord, would you uh, send us out in joy today in the hope of the gospel. Drive us deeply into your word. Father, help us keep studying and, and, and learning. Father, I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, everyone.